to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing U.S. officials trying to redefine anti-Semitism to be explicitly pro-Zionist. Also going to be talking about the 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party and going to be marking the anniversary of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Miko Pellet, human rights activist and author of The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Miko, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you again. Thank you. Absolutely. And Miko, uh, officials in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is not too far from where we are here in Washington, D.C., um, are reportedly attempting to uh, adopt a new definition of anti-Semitism that uh, basically seems designed to uh, uh, basically make illegal any uh, sort of criticism of Israel and really seeks to conflate uh, Judaism with the state of Israel itself. So I was hoping you could explain uh, just what's happening here and and what is the motivation behind this? Well, uh, thanks for having me again. Uh, look, the uh, Zionist organizations around the world, just to give some context, um, they have been uh, struggling with the fact that um, there is a, a voice that is delegitimizing Zionism and delegitimizing Israel. And so what they decided to do is they decided to c- find a way to conflate um, Zionism, which is a racist ideology that claims that I, as a, as a Jew, have a right to, pal- to live in Palestine at the expense of Palestinians, basically, uh, with Judaism in general. Now, historically, Jews have always um, opposed Zionism, and gradually more and more Jews you know, accepted it, but still the traditional you know, Orthodox uh, Judaism still opposes Zionism. Um, and there are many Jewish people like myself who are completely secular, but oppose Zionism and reject it and, and, and say that it is completely illegitimate. But in order to overcome that, what they've done is they came up with this uh, new, they call it a working definition. In other words, it's not a binding definition, in which they very subtly conflate uh, anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. Now, um if we're fighting racism, we have to fight Zionism. Uh, so this is really important to understand because Zionism is a form of racism. And so if you're going to be anti-racist, you have to be anti-Zionist. If you're going to fight anti-Semitism, you have to fight Zionism too. Uh, that's the reality. And what they've done in this, in this new working definition is they put the name Israel in it several times. And so Israel becomes the issue. Um, and so if you accuse Jewish people of something or Israel as something, then that's anti-Semitism. If you accuse Jewish people of being something and is, you know what I mean? The word Israel comes over and over and over again. And what they did is they entered this one clause, which is very troubling, which says denying Jewish people the right to self-determination by claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor qualifies as anti-Semitism. So you got to pull back for a minute and go, wait a minute. First of all, 
Jewish people are not a nation. So their self-determination is not is not a question of Israel or not Israel. American Jews are American. That's their self-determination. You know, French Jews are French. Argentinian Jews are Argentinian, and on and on and on. Judaism is a religion, not a nationality. So they've kind of turned that around. And then they say that if you claim that Israel is a racist endeavor, which it absolutely is, now you are anti-Semitic. Um, and that's a very subtle way of, again, conflating uh, anti-Semitism, which is a form of racism, with anti-Zionism, which is a form of anti-racism. You know what I mean? So that's what this is about. And what they've been doing is county by county, uh, university campus by university campus. So in other words, they go to non-governmental organizations and through governmental organizations throughout the United States, throughout Europe, um, and they and they push they push authorities to adopt this new definition. And it's been very difficult because then what happens is once they adopt it, if you say what I say, suddenly I become an anti-Semite, even though I'm Jewish. So that's what this is about. And Montgomery County, you know, I suddenly heard about this happening in Montgomery County. And I thought, what the hell is going on in Montgomery County that suddenly they decided they have to do this, you know, uh, because this has nothing to do with fighting anti-Semitism. This has nothing to do with fighting racism. This has everything to do with bowing down to Zionist pressure and Israeli pressure. That's a long answer. Yeah, no, and I appreciate it because um, what, what what strikes me is how uh, supposedly this is happening because of an uptick in anti-Semitic attacks. Now, a couple of years ago in the U.S., we saw a slew of anti-Asian uh, racist uh, hate crimes that were directly connected, I would argue, to the U.S.'s uh, policies uh, towards China and their pronouncements therein. But it seems to me that if there's an issue of uh, racist or racism or bigotry in a place, then it should be up for public discussion. But it seems to me that the Montgomery County officials uh, tried to basically sneak this vote through and somehow it was made public and they faced some resistance. And so I mean, how does that factor into it? Because it seems to me that uh, the way that they try to slide this through kind of undermines what they see as the legitimacy of this. You know what I mean? Of course, you're absolutely right. That's exactly it. On the one hand, they try to, you know, to slide this in under the radar. And by chance, this is a vote that was supposed to take place in July, I think. And someone found out, an activist, and then hundreds of emails were sent and they postponed the vote. Now, I got a call about a week ago from somebody uh, from Montgomery County saying, can you get involved? Can you say something? Can you, you know, I posted a video and everything. Uh, because it sounds like, it feels like it's coming up again and they're going to surprise us. They're not telling people when and how they're going to do it. So again, like you said, if anti-Semitism is such an issue suddenly, if it's really on the rise, we need to have an open discussion on how to fight this. Now, I also, you know, I, I'm not sure that anti-Semitism can be separated from other forms of racism. Of course, there's racism in Montgomery County, just like there's racism in Los Angeles County and every other country in between, a county in between across the country. You know, racism is a big problem in America. It's not just racism against Jewish people, like you said, racism against Asians, racism against people of color, and on and on and on. Racism is a big problem in this country. So if we want to tackle racism... And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here Dr. Ibram Kendi, uh, where he says, you know, you have to be anti-racist. That's how you fight racism. You know, you have to be anti-Zionist. That's how you fight racism. It's not enough to just come up and say, you know, I'm not a racist. I'm a good guy because, you know, Donald Trump said that. 
anybody can say that. You have to actively be anti-racist. So if there is an anti-Semitism problem, you have to tackle it by being absolutely clear that you're anti-racist, not supporting a racist endeavor in Palestine, which is what Israel is, and allowing the, all these Zionist institutions, pro-Israel institutions around the country, to dictate what, what you know, what kind of what kind of uh, definitions are being adopted by different communities in this country to tackle racism. And again, like you said, have an open debate, open it up, bring people to talk about this. How do we tackle this issue if really there is such a surge suddenly in anti-Semitism? You know, and I'm not undermining that. I think racism is a terrible thing, and there should be zero tolerance to any form of racism. But this is not tackling the problem. This is dealing with a whole other issue, which is actually supporting racism. Yeah, definitely. And what I meant to say earlier when I mentioned the uh, anti-Asian hate crimes is that, you know, this was something that became an issue across the country and people mobilized around it, similar to issues in the Black Lives Matter movement. But I mean, as you note, I mean, that clearly does not seem to be the real motivation uh, uh, of this whole piece. And I think you're right, Miko, when you point out about how uh, this seems to be rooted in an accusation of uh, bigotry um, that is posed as really a cover or a whitewashing of the racism of the bigotry and, and uh, straight out the apartheid character of Israel itself. And I feel like for some time we've been trying to see this uh, a conflation of Jewish identity with Israel, which I, I personally find to be anti-Semitic in and of itself. Uh, but as always, it's so important that we keep the real character of Israel in mind when we see these sorts of measures take place. But we want to thank you so so much, Miko, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Marco Fernandez, a researcher at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, co-editor of News on China for Dongsheng News, and an organizer of the No Cold War campaign. Marco, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here with you guys. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Marco. And of course, the 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, the ruling party in that country, uh, kicked off yesterday on the 16th and I believe is set to continue through the 22nd. Now, it seems that whenever uh, uh, there's a Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, um, the corporate media of the West uh, always sort of mobilize to sort of uh, misconstrue and cast aspersions both on on uh, uh, the Congress, the party, and uh, Xi Jinping himself as the leader of uh, China. And, you know, just to begin, Marco, could you sort of break down what is the purpose of a Congress of the Chinese Communist Party and what, I suppose, is the context or the conditions inside China leading up to uh, this Congress? 
Sure, Shen. Well, first of all, the Congress uh, of the Communist Party of China happens each five years, and it's supposed to elect uh, the Central Committee of the party with 300-something um, members, plus the Politburo, which is the 25 uh, members, and the Standing Committee of the Politburo, which is the seven uh, most important leaders of the country. And, of course, it's General Secretary, who, who is uh, Xi Jinping, uh, for the last uh, two terms, 10 years, and is most likely uh, going to the third uh, term. But, I mean, the Chinese Communist Party it has uh, 96.7 million members. So this is the first thing that sometimes the, the Western media uh, sort of erases, is that the party is massively representative of the society. I mean, China has, uh, if, if the party, China's party was uh, a country, it would be the 16th country, the most populated in the world. So this is just to have a sense of what is the size of the, of the party and, and how legitimate the party is. So the situation right now in the country, I mean, as you know, China has, uh, I mean, this Congress particularly is very historical for a couple of reasons. First of all, because this is the first Congress where China is, um, I mean, at the center, at the very center of the geopolitical um, uh, scenario, and and as a as a protagonist, as a as a key country, and of course, it's been attacked by U.S. Um, massively in the last, especially in the last three years, three four years since Trump uh, got into office, but Biden is basically uh, continued Trump's policy uh, regarding China. So this is the first thing, and the second thing is that, of course, in and China has uh, also has achieved. Mm, I mean, huge achievements in the last in the last ten years in the country, but has also uh, big challenges ahead. So, I mean, therefore, this Congress is, is really special, and of course, the whole world is looking into China in these next days. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I'm also wondering, uh, given some of some of that context you just laid forth, Marco. I mean, what do you think uh, uh, in terms when, when we look at how China has been developing over these uh, last few years under the leadership of Xi Jinping. I mean, what do you think it says about Xi Jinping's leadership of the country? And I wanted to ask that because, you know, like a number of uh, world leaders we can name, I feel like the reality of, you know, who Xi Jinping is and uh, his actual role and what he's able to accomplish as leader of China gets uh, uh, obscured and stigmatized and demonized because of uh, the way that Washington and the West uh, views China, and more precisely, the threat that it feels that China poses to U.S. world hegemony. So from your perspective, I mean, what is the reality of the leadership of Xi Jinping in China up until this point and how that leadership is perceived? Yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, Shan. Look, um, let me tell you a short story. When when Xi Jinping uh, got into office in 2012, 10 years ago, uh, the police bureau called a meeting with the major think tanks of the country, the think tanks of the of the Chinese uh, state. So uh, the question from police bureau to this uh, think tanks was, what are the main challenges of the Communist Party of China have ahead in the next years? So after a few years, after doing research, talking to people, studying data, they come back uh, in a meeting with Politburo, and they said, look, the two major challenges we have, or the party has, are, first of all, corruption. I mean, at this point, corruption was a very, very 
I mean, it was massively happening in the side of party, unfortunately, especially because all the intertween with uh, with big business, etc. So that was the first thing. And, and the country was, uh, the party was starting to lose legitimacy towards the people. So that was the first thing. The second thing was... Uh, what they call the detachment from the bases of the of the country, from from the peasants, from the working class, etc. So that was a two major challenges. I mean, based on that, I'll give you uh, four examples of of successes of Xi in the last ten years that uh, gave to him uh, now the major support that they have inside the party and in the country. First of all, corruption. So he launched a major campaign against corruption inside the party. Just to have an idea, in the last 10 years, the party expelled more than 2 million cadres, 2 million cadres because of corruption. And thousands of them actually ended up in jail because it was proved that they got, I mean, bribes, etc. So that was the first thing. And 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 second thing was the um, this issue of the detachment from the basis. Um, it was a, a very creative answer that the party gave in, uh, under the leadership of Xi Jinping. Because, you know, China had also a major issue was extreme poverty. When Xi Jinping uh, started his first term, China had, 100 million people living in extreme poverty. Uh, I mean, uh, in a, after two years, uh, one year, two years, Xi Jinping also launched a campaign called the Targeted Poverty Alleviation Campaign. It was supposed to tackle this issue. But, I mean, there was a very creative uh, way to do that because they mobilized the whole society for this challenge, both the public sector and the, the private sector. And guess what? The most uh, impressive initiative was to send 3 million cadres of the party, 3 million members of the party to live in the village, in the poorest areas of the country to help coordinate the efforts against poverty. And of course, with that, what happened is that you had this uh, the reconnection between the party and the bases of society, especially in the rural areas, especially among peasants. I mean, you have to remember, China is still, 40% of China is still uh, lives in rural areas, still peasants. So that was a big issue. And the two other ones I would, I would highlight was, uh, first of all, um, the issue of environment. China has major problems also because of pollution of air, of, of water, of soil, everything, especially because of the huge uh, and, and fast industrialization that the country lived in the last 30 years. So, of course, this is also a major issue of China. And, and in 2015, also, Xi Jinping launched another campaign. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Lushed Water, uh, no, Clean water, green mountain, something like that is like a very poetic name. But actually, what since then China has been committed in many, many uh, uh, sectors uh, about, um, I mean, this issue of pollution. So, for instance, China reduced in the last seven years forty percent of the of the air pollution in the big cities. And also, China committed in twenty twenty one to the some of these uh, the, the big goals of decarbon decarbonization. Right, so for for 2030 and 2060 in two uh, stages. So this is uh, another big big deal. But China still have a huge uh, challenge ahead. I mean, pollution is still big, etc. But the China, the country is very committed also to fight uh, against against pollution and in, in, in environment. So and the last thing I would say was was the pandemic was COVID. I mean, because of the of the measures that the Chinese government had since. 
the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, uh, after more than two years, around 5,000 people die in China because of COVID. It's a 1.4 billion people country. So U.S. had more than 1 million deaths. In my country, Brazil, we had almost 700,000 people uh, that. So, so China actually survived the pandemic and saved actually millions of lives of the, of the people. So I think there's four major challenges I would highlight, I think gives you a sense uh, of what Xi Jinping accomplished as, as a leader of this country in the last 10 years and why uh, Chinese Communist Party has massive support from the population. And, and that's why also Xi Jinping is going to the third term now, because he's fully supported both inside the party and in the whole society. Yeah. And, you know, China's response to the outbreak of the coronavirus uh, pandemic was nothing short of amazing to me, Marco. And, and we've been sort of tracking uh, China's response to the pandemic in the time since, because, I mean, here in the United States, I mean, we saw the complete opposite uh, on the one hand. And on the second hand, there was this outright uh, condemnation uh, of China for taking the kind of quick and aggressive steps that are necessary to contain a pandemic. And those measures, which proved successful, were framed as being, quote unquote, authoritarian and uh, evidence uh, of the supposedly uh, despotic character of the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping. And so it's like a complete topsy turvy uh, funhouse mirror version of reality that we are told here in the United States and the West as it concerns China instead of uh, learning the lessons, which I think is part of the reason why, as of today, we're standing at at least a. a million deaths from the coronavirus in the U.S. But to uh, sort of reveal the truth of that would contradict this new Cold War reality that the U.S. has with China because the U.S. is threatened by China's peaceful rise. And this new Cold War reality, I think uh, here lately, um, it seems that the U.S. is hellbent on on turning it into a hot war vis-a-vis its machinations uh, uh, with Taiwan, which I think has some resonance and parallels with uh, the U.S. NATO proxy war in Ukraine. And on that note, Marco, I did want to talk about how or if this Congress sort of reflected the position of China in the broader geopolitical sense. I mean, I mentioned China's uh, uh, peaceful rise. Um, You know, we maintain that uh, China's quite clearly uh, an ascendant world power and uh, didn't become that through, you know, war and uh, colonialism and things like that, but through, you know, internal development and uh, programs like the Belt and Road Initiative, which I think is inclining more and more countries to ask serious questions about Um, uh, getting out from under the pressures of uh, U.S. world hegemony and the stranglehold of the dollar and all these sorts of things. And so how did the uh, uh, geopolitical situation sort of play in uh, to this Congress, Marco, uh, as it seems that it's one of those things that sort of uh, are affecting people all around the world? Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I mean, uh, first of all, uh, the Congress just started. So what we had now was the uh, the 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 opening speech from, mm-hmm. from Xi Jinping, which was actually its uh, report 
of the last five years, the last uh, 19th Congress, because, you know, the Congress actually is not only an event in one week, but it, the Congress lasts for five years. So what we have now is 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 the report. And of course, this would it will be uh, one of the key discussions of the next days here in, in Beijing. And we should have more things, of course, at the end of the Congress. But one thing that, of course, we can already uh, talk about is, first of all, what 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 is in the speech uh, from Xi. Uh, he said, uh, I mean, regarding this issue, he quote unquote, he said, uh, we are committed to narrowing the north-south gap and supporting and assisting other developing countries in accelerating development. And said also that China upholds true multilateralism, promotes greater democracy in international relations. So I think these two key issues, I mean, you already mentioned, for instance, BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, that was, I mean, the last, uh, it was also uh, uh, launched by Xi in 2013, and we had already uh, literally hundreds of millions of, of uh, billions, sorry, hundreds of billions of dollars in investments in the countries of Asia and Africa and Latin America. This is, I think, one of the main, main aspects. But you also had to see what China has been doing, the last, especially in the last two, three years, regarding uh, not only the attacks from from United States and from Europe, but how China is also building, uh, trying to build um, a, a response to these attacks from, from the empire. So um, China is building the BRICS, which is this uh, platform, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and South Africa. Uh, China is also um, uh, one of the key partners of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is in Central Asia with Pakistan, with uh, Russia, with India, with all this, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, also had Iran just join. Um, and also China has uh, has built with both Latin America countries uh, in CELAC. There's a, like a China CELAC forum and also FOCAT, which is a China and the African Union country. So China is fully committed to reinforce this uh, regional platforms that can try to give more strength of the countries of the global south uh, in the negotiations within the 20 and IMF and all the international forums, which is critical for our countries uh, uh, in the south, as we know, because, I mean, what China is basically uh, advocating now with many other countries in the global south is that we can no longer live in a, in a world that is just run by uh, one country. I mean, U.S., they, they like to call the international, they leave or they support the international rules-based order. But we know this is actually the American rules-based order. And, and this is, uh, uh, I mean, these days are over and we have to build a different uh, new uh, order uh, in the next years. Yeah. And, you know, uh, this also has me thinking, Marco, one thing that always sort of impresses me about um, the Chinese Communist Party is, is this, uh, this this forward thinking that they have and how they plan for uh, the future of the country in a way that I feel like we don't see, uh, certainly uh, in the U.S., where, you know, uh, frankly, everything is uh, subject to the whims of uh, capital and what corporations and CEOs and, and the 
wealthy want uh, for their own benefit instead of what's actually beneficial um, for uh, the masses of people, and particularly in a moment that we're in, in the United States, where people are seeing their material conditions worsen uh, more and more as time goes on here. I mean, it feels like the, the, the difference couldn't be more stark. And so, I mean, this is a broad question, but I, I have to ask, you know, what does the role of Chinese socialism or what some may call socialism with Chinese characteristics, how does that frame, that ideological frame, uh, sort of color or impact the way that the Chinese Communist Party uh, uh, conceives of itself and the path forward for China as a nation? Well, that's a, that's a very complex question, a very, uh, very good question, actually, Shen. Um, so first of all, I would say, in terms of the, the discussion about socialism in this country now, I mean, of course, China has been building socialism for, I mean, 70, more than 70 years since the, uh, the revolution in 1949. But of course, also the country uh, had different, very different uh, uh, stages of, of building socialism, right? So uh, I think what we are seeing now in, in the last 10 years with Xi Jinping, it's uh, some shift is are happening, I would say, in the country. I, For instance, I can tell you that um, in the last years, uh, there's a whole revival of uh, Maoism in, in China, going back to Marxism. I mean, even, I mean, in the, in the, if you see the, the speech of Xi uh, yesterday, uh, he was basically saying, guys, this uh, China is working because it's, it, we are Marxists. Marxism works for our country. Of course, we need to adapt to Chinese reality, um, but this is what is making us uh, thrive. And I would tell you, Shen, this is a different uh, kind of discourse that we've seen in China, I would say maybe 15 or 20 years ago. So China at some point had to do some concessions to the, to the Western powers that was like in, in the reform opening up, uh, led by Deng Xiaoping, um, which was okay. Let's tone down a little bit this this ideological debate because we need to develop this country and we need to again be friends with, with the U.S. and and Europe. And, and so that happened. But even for then, it was very clear that this was a tactical move. I mean, if you see uh, some of the Deng's uh, uh, tax reflections, he was saying, guys, that's turned down now, but in 40 years, 50 years from now, we're gonna be strong again, and then we can uh, bring back uh, uh, the more ideological debates that we need uh, to, to move ahead in the country. But actually what happened is that this happened, uh, China's uh, development was faster than Deng Xiaoping uh, 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 forecast. And, and what she is bringing back is, is um, a more comprehensive debate and, and he's pushing and supporting uh, the discussions on Marxism at universities, in the think tanks, and he's even, I mean, speaking clearly about Marxism and, and socialism in a way that we didn't see in this country uh, in, in 15, 20 years ago. So I think this, and in general, I would say also to uh, mention what you said, is that he's had, this has to do with, with the, the planning of the economy, uh, of course, but also has to do with the conception that um, for instance, right now, China has 
a problem of inequality. And, and, and of course, for a socialist country, this is a big deal. That's why also she is bringing back the, uh, the concept of common prosperity, which is going to be the challenge in the next, uh, next years ahead. Uh, which is to um, to uh, what is it called to close this gap uh, between between the 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 more rich in the country and the working class and the peasants. But again, what I think is very new from especially from the last five years is this efforts that she has been doing in terms of the ideological debate in the country, uh, pushing for Marxism in universities, anything thanks, and, and, and talking about socialism as he's been talking, which is, I think, it's a, a very uh, exciting thing for the next years for the ideological uh, scenario of China. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Marco, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we wanted to mark the 56th anniversary of the founding of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which was founded in Oakland, California on October 15th, 1966. And so to celebrate the anniversary of this very important revolutionary uh, uh, party and all of their work and ongoing impact, we want to play a commentary uh, by political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal from 2016, where he describes what he calls the genius of Huey P. Newton, who co-founded the party alongside Bobby Seale. And so here is Mumia Abu-Jamal discussing the genius of Huey P. Newton. The genius of Huey P. Newton. To those of us who are alive and sentient, the name Huey P. Newton evokes an era of mass resistance, of black popular protest, and of the rise of revolutionary organizations across the land. To those of subsequent eras, youth in their 20s, the name is largely unknown, as is the name of his greatest creation, the Black Panther Party. To those of us now known as old heads or elders, such a transition from then to now seems almost unimaginable. But alas, looking out into the present world is proof positive that the old saying, history is written by the victors, has more than a grain of truth to it. History, it seems, is many things, but kind to the oppressed, it is not. It never has been. It is up to the oppressed of every generation to plumb the depths of history and to excavate the ore of understanding, to teach us not what happened yesterday, but to teach us why today is like it is, so that we may learn ideas to change it. For history belongs not so much to those who have lived it, but more so to those who have inherited it. It is in that spirit that we examine the life of Huey P. Newton. Huey Percy Newton was born in Louisiana, 1942, 
named for the populist Louisiana Governor Huey Pierce Long, known in the state as the Kingfish. Like many blacks in California, Huey would carry the rhythms of the South in his speech, and when nervous, it would rise to a disconcerting twang. Perhaps this accounted for his self-consciousness, his wariness of speaking in public. His family, like tens of thousands of others, formed the last legs of the great migration of black flight from the apartheid south to the north and to the west. He would enter the streets of Oakland a slender, short, beautiful boy, and the prospect terrified him. For while his father thought the name Huey was a respectful tribute to a gifted politician, to the hard urban streets of Oakland, it was an invitation to an ass-whipping. A scared boy does what's been done since the dawn of human time. He tells an older brother, Walter schooled him to attack the biggest guy in the pack and how to prevail. Keyed by his fear, Huey would follow these directions explicitly. He would throw his fear at the biggest guy in a bunch in the form of his fists. For Big Brother Walter taught him that the biggest guy often had the biggest fear, bigger than his own. He also learned that the best defense was often a stiff offense. The English poet William Wordsworth said, the child is father of the man. Lessons learned in beardless youth became the matrix of the man he became. In describing his thinking at the time, Elaine Brown, his lover and political comrade, quoted him as saying, every blood on that street was a potential threat unless I knew he was a friend. After my first fights, I recognized that they bled like me. By the time I became a teenager, I was challenging the first fool that looked at me wrong and walking around with an ice pick in a paper bag. As a direct consequence of these street battles, the young Newton boy earns a rather unflattering nickname, Crazy Huey. One can almost hear this Greek chorus whispered with a mix of fear and fascination. Who that boy? Who are you talking about? That pretty boy right there. Oh, don't mess with him. That's crazy Huey. Thus, from his earliest youth until adulthood, Newton was on a war footing. How could this not mold the man? He was also a petty thief who took, to say the least, an unusual path to perfect his craft. To succeed as a thief, Newton studied the California Crimes Code. He would later write, I first studied law to become a better burglar, figuring I might get busted at any time and wanting to be ready when it happened. I bought some books on criminal law and burglary and felony and looked up as much as possible. I tried to find out what kind of evidence they needed, what things were actually considered violations of the law, what the loopholes were, and what you could do to avoid being charged at all. They had a law for everything. I studied the California Penal Code and books like California Criminal Evidence and California Criminal Law by Frick and Alarcon, concentrating on those areas that were somewhat vague. Newton sought such vague laws because they could more easily be overturned as void for vagueness. Such street and legal study and experiences would prove valuable in the years to come, for this was the early to middle 60s, a time of emergent and roiling social discontent and upheaval. Rosa Parks and Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. were names known in black communities nationwide. 
black students kicked off 1960 by sit-ins at lunch counters in the South that evoked ugly white violence. Before the year was out, over 70,000 students had engaged in sit-ins, black and white. By 1961, freedom rides rolled through southern states in protest to racial segregation, resulting in vicious violence by white racist groups like the Ku Klux Klan. By 1963, four black girls were bombed in a Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama. They called it Bombingham. Soon, white and black civil rights workers will be murdered in Mississippi. As these events happened, a new invention called television carried these images into millions of black homes across America. It especially rankled blacks in the North, for most could remember Southern childhoods, and they knew, knew in their bones that but for a chance bus ride North or West, it could be them, their baby sister, their brothers or fathers who would have been brutalized, bombed or shot by the racists. The Watts riot tore across Southern California on a hot night in August 1965, the result of police mistreatment of black drivers for five nights the ghetto burned. The petty crimes of Newton seemed petty indeed against such a backdrop of violence and terror. And the little guy who once looked at bloods on the street as threats began focusing on new threats, armed men, armed white men, clad in blue, cops, white cops, sneering cops, domineering cops, cops hired from the American South. They rode through Oakland like gangsters in blue, harassing blacks at will. These forces converged to energize and radicalize black youth throughout the community. Among them, two black students at a junior college in town, two alumni of Merritt Junior College, having read the speeches of Malcolm X and the essays of Franz Fanon in The Wretched of the Earth, met to build a new radical and indeed revolutionary organization. Huey P. Newton and Bobby G. Seale would found the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. From October 1st to the 15th, both men would pen the organization's 10-point program and platform. Newton was 24 years old, Seale 30. The men hit the street organizing, and a revolutionary movement was born. It was pitched to black youth, especially ghetto youth, and they joined, and the organization grew. Young men and women would join and perhaps for the first time in their lives study, not for a grade, but to learn about revolutionary ideas from struggles around the world, China, Cuba, Algeria, South Africa, Vietnam, and beyond. The BPP, it would later drop the self-defense reference, would grow from its base of Oakland and expand to Richmond and Los Angeles and Seattle, Washington. But events occurring roughly a year after its founding would catapult the organization, in effect, hydroplaning it nationwide, exploding it, sending it into over 40 cities across America. A hot summer evening, 1967, and a car stop by the Oakland police would result in Huey being charged with murder. Two cops shot, and Huey sent to hospital with a gunshot wound to his abdomen. It gave birth to the Free Huey movement, and by so doing, changed the party's trajectory from a small regional group to a national one. 
offices opened in Boston, in Baton Rouge, in Philadelphia, Chicago, Harlem, the Bronx, Winston-Salem, Omaha, Baltimore, Detroit, Jersey City, Kansas City, San Diego, and more. Where there were black communities, there were black militants, most moved by the masterful oratory and martyrdom of Malcolm X. These young brothers and sisters, mostly teenagers, formed the bulk of Black Panther membership. All of these brothers and sisters, thousands across the nation, joined in some degree because of their admiration, respect, and for some, veneration of the Minister of Defense. Most, too, did not know him. They never met him. They read of him and fell in love, some with him, some with his amazing vision of Black Panther Party. Because Newton was complex, so was his creation. It changed constantly as he changed and developed from a Malcolmite nationalist organization to a revolutionary nationalist, to a revolutionary internationalist, to socialist, to Maoist, to what Newton termed an intercommunalist. This was Newton's theoretical construct that nations were but illusions, assemblies of flags, for in the presence of a global imperial power such as the U.S., nations were at best communities. He believed that U.S. economic power shattered sovereignties, for those who controlled foreign economies actually controlled those states. The rest is subterfuge. In 1972, Newton, using intercommunalist theory, predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. 1972. While traditional Marxists ridiculed Newton's ideas, the Soviet Union shuttered its doors on December 26, 1991, two years after Newton's ignoble death on a street corner by a crack dealer. Complex, brilliant, self-taught, a PhD, fearless, full of fear, crazy, drug fiend, beautiful, mad, perhaps all of these epithets could at times described the founder of the Black Panther Party and its Minister of Defense. If Panthers could have worshipped him less and loved him more, perhaps, perhaps he would have survived. Perhaps the party would have survived. Perhaps. A memory, if you will. The place? Death Row, Pennsylvania, circa 1996. Your speaker is in discussion with acclaimed women's writer Alice Walker. We're lamenting the passing of Huey. He should have been at a black college teaching a new generation of activists, I say. Are you kidding me? She asks. What do you mean? You have no idea the politics in academia. They'd do anything to run him out. Wait, run him out? Why? I think he'd be the most popular professor on campus. Why do you think they'd run him out? You ain't seen nothing till you've seen the politics in academia. Perhaps... But this was not to be. Yet, who could deny Newton's brilliance? Which is all the more remarkable, because up until he entered 10th grade or so, he was all but illiterate. Huey tells an arresting tale of how his secret was uncovered. Like most younger brothers, he looked up to his older brother, Melvin. And like most illiterates, he developed an extraordinary memory. When Melvin came home one day, he saw Huey reciting from one of Melvin's books. At first impressed, he turned and stunned the youth by declaring him illiterate. How had he known? The book held in Huey's hands 
was upside down. Huey, shamed, essentially taught himself to read using the power of his will. He therefore read slowly but deeply, draining each word of its significance. Oddly enough, this may have proven an advantage of Newton's over traditional readers who learned their basics in kindergarten or first, second grade. How so? Illiterates, as we've suggested, devote a significant amount of mental energy to memorize important data, especially to avoid the shame of discovery. This is no mean feat. One must, by sheer necessity, develop a way of knowing that is based on hearing and retaining data that early writers and readers never actualized. Moreover, illiterates must develop original ways of seeing and interpreting and categorizing the world. Unlike your literate colleagues, you're unable to relay and store data on a page. You must store data in your internal mental template and then develop the machinery for a retrieval. Such a person seems, in a sense, a freer thinker, able to question, make sense of, and define the world in one's own way. And all of this must be done under the constant psychological stress and pressure of discovery, which evokes shame. This may account for Huey's intensity and his constant inability to speak before large audiences, which must have seemed unbearable. By the same token, once it was discovered that Huey was illiterate, he used considerable mental energy to learn, to essentially teach himself that hidden art. Such a process must have released enormous forces that could now be devoted to belated learning, cognition, and retention. Co-founder Bobby Seale wrote that Newton read the book The Wretched of the Earth by revolutionary psychiatrist Franz Fanon some six times. This text, translated from Fanon's native French, is a difficult work for any reader. One thinks it deeply informed Newton on concepts of decolonization, anti-imperialism, Arab independence movements, torture, and its resultant traumas, both upon the tortured and the torturer. It also was a primer on revolutionary violence, how the oppressed must confront the oppressor. How could these ideas not prove definitive in the founding and formation of the Black Panther Party? The concept of Black America as a colony and white America as the mother country can be explained by Fanon's ideas of the colonial struggle against the oppressive, exploitative European imperial power. The book, The Wretched of the Earth, so influential to the party's founders, became required reading for members and was often discussed in P.E. or as it was written by a black man actively engaged in a North African revolutionary endeavor it took on an added sheen and influence. Indeed, Fanon's masterwork was so highly regarded in the late 60s and early 70s that it was called the Handbook of the Black Revolution, Huey's Mind. Newton's mind seemed never to rest, for he read a wide range of literature to answer questions of existence. He found the writings of German philosopher Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche especially his The Will to Power and Beyond Good and Evil, especially influential. While not citing him explicitly, 
as early as 1971, the fifth year of the party's existence, Nietzsche's influence can be seen. In Newton's article of 5 June 1971, Black Capitalism Reanalyzed, he writes, when we coined the expression, all power to the people, we had in mind emphasizing the word power, for we recognize that the will to power is the basic drive of man, but it is incorrect to seek power over people. We have been subjected to the dehumanizing power of exploitation and racism for hundreds of years, and the black community has its own will to power also. What we seek, however, is not power over people, but the power to control our own destiny. It's hard to read such words without encountering Nietzsche, whether he cites him or not, for the central theme is inescapable. The will to power is the basic drive of man. Newton was at bottom at a deep foundational level, a Nietzschean. Indeed, he was more Nietzschean than Marxist, for he often criticized Marxism as dogmatic. Marxism was a way. Nietzscheanism was objective, underlying the way, power. Yet Nietzsche, unlike Fanon or Chairman Mao, was not required reading. Elaine Brown writes that at Huey's behest, the party established a school for party leadership to attempt to acquaint them with broad philosophical ideas. Now they were wondering about his ideological institute, she writes. I saw the questions as the local leadership cadres came trooping to Oakland from as far away as Boston, Philadelphia, and Chicago for bi-monthly two-day learning sessions led by Huey. Where was the stuff about the pigs, they seemed to ask, as we studied not only Mao and Marx, but Aristotle and Plato. Where was the stuff about Irving guerrilla warfare, their expressions conveyed, as Huey led us in discussions of the philosophies of Rousseau and Kant, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, about existentialism and determinism and free will. I saw their faces when we examined and questioned the theories of capitalism and socialism and communism. Huey asking whether our systematic use of the tests of dialectical materialism meant anything, if, under a dialectical materialist analysis, nothing stood outside of the process, did that negate the process itself, he asked. Huey P. Newton was, by necessity, a man of action, but he was also a man of ideas. He was so as an illiterate. He became more so when he began to read and added exponentially to his storehouse of ideas. As a dialectical materialist, he knew that everything was in a state of flux, that change was the only constant. As a Nietzschean, he knew that only power could influence that change and direct it along its desired course. One needed the will to power. Dewey had no shortage of that quality. When he went to prison, he knew every panther in California, for he or Bobby had recruited him or her. When he was freed on appeal in 1970, he emerged to a group that he neither knew nor built. There were panthers in Boston, Harlem, Philadelphia, Detroit. He didn't know these people, even if all of them were inspired by him. If you didn't know someone, how could you trust them? To add insult to injury, the FBI's COINTELPRO program had bogus letters sent to him 
ostensibly from other Panthers, criticizing his rule, criticizing other Panthers, and even threatening him. Who were these people, he must have wondered. So, using that mighty will, he shrunk the party, probably intending to rebuild it in his own Nietzschean image. That was not to be. He tried with all his might to change history. But history is a cruel mistress. She loves, she caresses, and she moves on, creating new days, new possibilities, new realities. Dr. Huey P. Newton dared to struggle and inspired millions to also fight against a twisted, broken, racist system. He built an organization that rattled the cages of oppressed and oppressor alike. Then, like the true Nietzschean he was, he shattered it into a thousand pieces. He lived, he rebelled, he inspired, he died. But most of all, he rebelled. That's more than most of us can say. I thank you for your time. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. We'll be right back here on By Any Means Necessary. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, October 17th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. All right, but it's all standing by. You can also download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also check us out at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And just like every day, we are streaming live from rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Mr. James Early former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to join you and your audience and looking forward to hearing from the audience. Absolutely. And uh, Mr. Early, uh, the United States and Canada have sent armored vehicles to Haiti uh, following the uh, calls from uh, the government of Dr. Ariel Henry for uh, a foreign help and really, frankly, foreign intervention, uh, you know, uh, based on his claims around the issue of uh, armed groups uh, threatening to 
oust the prime minister. Now, of course, uh, this comes amid a weeks of protests that have been calling for uh, the ouster of Dr. Henri, someone who was not elected and who was not the choice of the Haitian people, but rather was uh, chosen and propped up by uh, the machinations of U.S. imperialism. And uh, at a recent meeting of the OAS, the Organization of American States in Lima, Peru, uh, Haitian Foreign Minister Jean-Victor Genais called for a, quote, international police force uh, uh, to uh, basically help contain the situation within Haiti, as it's clear that Henri has no real power. And uh, this follows from a U.S. delegation that recently uh, went to Haiti, uh, headed up by Assistant Secretary of State for the U.S. for the Western Hemisphere, uh, Brian Nichols, uh, who said in part, quote, the U.S. will continue to stand with Haiti to urgently stem the outbreak of cholera and help restore security to ensure that life-saving assistance reaches those in need. We remain committed to working with Haitian and international partners to support Haiti. Now, I mentioned that, uh, uh, you know, people have been in the streets of Haiti demanding Henri's resignation, but they've also been uh, speaking out against another foreign intervention at the behest of the United Nations as past interventions have had devastating and violent effects on uh, the Haitian people. So, Mr. Early, I'm just wondering what you make of uh, uh, this development as it seems the U.S. Uh, seems bent on continuing its uh, long history of, uh, frankly, thwarting democracy and assaulting the human rights of the people of Haiti. Well, as a backdrop to your question, I'm just reminded that um, in 2011, uh, Danny Glover and I, along with Kurtzman, the lawyer for Aristide, uh, were the three people from the United States who went to South Africa uh, to fly back with uh, President Aristide uh, in 2011 after he had been ousted by the uh, Obama, actually kidnapped uh, by the Obama administration, I think it was 2004. Uh, and the Obama administration took a position, uh, this is according to a meeting that we had in the home of then President Zuma of South Africa, uh, several of us in which he indicated that he had refused to take a call from the Obama administration that was indicating they did not want Aristide to return to the hemisphere. Uh, so for me, it's a very resonant personal uh, backdrop, a uh, continuation uh, going back, um, you know, to Haitian independence. Um, this step on the part of Canada and the United States, I think, uh, unfortunately, tragically, is a pretext uh, for a more direct intervention to follow in the not-too-distant future. Uh, Haiti is in a bad situation because the formal issues of democracy in terms of being able to elect uh, officials of their choice freely without intervention uh, from the West in particular has been thwarted at every turn. Uh, Lavalas, uh, which is in Haitian Creole, a cleansing flood, uh, which was represented by the governance of Aristide, has been basically banned uh, from formal participation. Uh, Henry, who is not an elected official, as you have been noted, uh, sending tanks and other armament is not an indication that he is capable in his administration of handling gang violence. It's an indication that what will come is uh, expertise from the United States and Canada likely already there. They're not just sending equipment without accompaniment. And it's a pretext 
for another uh, UN uh, intervention. And here it's for Kamala Harris, uh, Indo-Caribbean uh, first uh, president, uh, vice president of the United States, uh, is an abject failure in the Biden administration's focus on continuing neocolonialism of Haiti. And this has got to be called out. And people need to keep this in mind as they're debating their votes for the next presidential uh, election. Here's where Brazil, which I know we will talk about later, is also uh, on the front lines, recalling that it was under the last administration of the very significant and important uh, democratic socialist governance of the Lula administration in Brazil, in which the Brazilian military was there, in which, through the UN, the cholera outbreak and rape of um, uh, young women and the impregnation of young women uh, was all part and parcel of that. Uh, look online and look at the Center for Economic Policy Research, Mark Weisbach's work in the past, uh, holding the UN accountable on this. So this is just a continuation of the denial of the formal qualities of democracy in Haiti by the U.S. and Canada and France in particular. And the UN's complicity in this, as well as the Organization of American States' complicity in this. And we must call on CARICOM, which has shown very progressive strength at, uh, trends at times uh, since the 90s with the election of Hugo Chavez and in uh, Venezuela, the late Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, in combating total dominance by the Organization of American States. And Amadro, uh, the right wing. Um, uh, leader of the Organization of American States from Uruguay, uh, who is uh, somewhat teetering now, right now on the charges of sexual impropriety, but more importantly, a political break in the Organization of American States in which President Obrador of Mexico has called for a real organic integrative organization in Latin Amer of Latin American and Caribbean countries, not without diplomatic uh, individual relations with the United States, but a self-determined Latin American, the Caribbean, and with the Organization of American States, as he has noted, uh, is not the horse to ride. So it is a it is a very troublesome moment that we are about to see another U.S.-Canada imposition of a military force in Haiti. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the uh, <clears throat> uh, 2004, you know, uh, uh, you know, the kidnapping of uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide, uh, who was. Uh, you know, democratically elected to head Haiti and to lead that country. But this was not to the liking of um, uh, imperialism. And also, I wanted to point out the role that we now know that uh, Hillary Clinton played in interfering with the 2010 uh, election in uh, Haiti, which I believe you alluded to as well. And in doing so, basically helped secure another victory for uh, Michel Martelly. And of course, Mr. Early, Haiti is a country that for its entire existence, up until this very day, has been subject to the um, attack and abuse and uh, just inhuman violence uh, uh, against its people by, you know, a series of different colonial and imperial powers also been subject to uh, a, a series of, you know, neo-colonial leaders who were very much uh, in the pocket working for the interest of those same colonial and imperial powers and who, you know, who, you know, at many times were directly responsible for the violence uh, uh, aimed at uh, the Haitian people while 
all the time, uh, robbing them blind. And I feel like uh, the the situation with uh, Aristide is just such a glaring example of that. And I think one glaring example of many that we could point to that really highlights the hypocrisy of U.S. imperialism that swears it's a champion of democracy, electoral uh, uh, politics and human rights and sovereignty and all those pretty sounding words. But in the case of Haiti and like so many others we can point to, it's clear that Washington and the other major powers, Canada among them, uh, uh, are interested in the complete opposite. And I think that that also fundamentally covers the way that we're taught about Haiti in the United States. And by taught, I mean uh, the pronouncements that we hear both from our government and from the corporate owned press, which is still rooted in like these deeply racist notions about, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, colonized people and their ability to lead, uh, namely in this case, of course, talking about Haiti, the ability for black people to be quote unquote civilized and that they're not able to govern their own nations. And so the, the great white father of imperialism has to come in and show his little black children how to conduct themselves. You know what I mean? And so like with so much, all of this in terms of the real operations, maneuvering and machinations of imperialism on top of the propaganda really, I think, just sort of uh, sets the stage. It sets the table for a justification for not only the abuse of Haiti and its people, but as we're speaking of right now, possibly a part in the path towards yet another foreign intervention. Well, Haiti, I think it's fair to say, is a concentrated expression of the uh, anti-working um, class, uh, racialized anti-working class perspectives of capitalism uh, in this hemisphere uh, from the very beginning. We must remember that the Haitian Revolution, uh, by the best of histor- historians, is contrasted with the philosophical and democratic rhetoric of the French Revolution. The Haitian Revolution was a bottom-up enslaved Africans and and freed uh, enslaved Africans who beat back Napoleon's army and set up a real republic from the bottom up as contrasted uh, with the elite American Revolution uh, against colonial uh, Britain. And that Haiti uh, is the material bedrock uh, for the emergence of the anti-colonial movement in Latin America uh, with what is now what was then called Grand Colombia, which is Venezuela, Panama, Peru, Ecuador, uh, in which Bolivar, uh, who led the first campaigns that defeated Spanish colonialism in the Americas, went to Haiti to ask for men and votes and took on uh, uh, a revolution against Spain, which eventually was successful in the liberation of those countries. And that it was Hugo Chavez in the early 90s, uh, late uh, 80s, early 90s, uh, who began to propagate the debt owed to Haiti uh, for w- working class emergence of democracy in this hemisphere, not the United States. And the United States and France, France and the United States in particular, uh, took Haiti's gold. Uh, the banks of New York uh, began to became the instrument of the U.S. government to dominate Haiti. Uh, I am historically not a uh, Haitian solidarity activist. It's not been the area that I've given most attention to. But 
I visited Haiti on at least two, maybe perhaps three occasions in my work, previous work at the Smithsonian Institution. And as I travel around the world, I have never seen such poverty, such squalor, such dehumanization by the upper class in collaboration uh, with the elites of the United States and the bipartisan uh, imperial pact the United States has held against Haiti. It is unbelievable, and we don't see that on television, MSNBC, CBS. Uh, all of these people will not show us uh, what is going on with the Haitian elites in collaboration. So now they focus on the gangs, and of course, gangs uh, is an indication of a serious breakdown in the fabric of society in which governance over the years has not been a corrective force to give avenues of wholesome development of people who end up in gangs. But the United States would have us believe that the gangs are now the issue and that cholera, which is now broken out in the largest prison in Haiti, are the primary issues, not the more fundamental issues of the repression of the masses of Haitian people, uh, which express their democratic aspirations, their organized public space uh, aspirations, uh, most significantly in the last decade in the Lavalas Party, uh, which has been banned, and the threat of Aristide. Aristide has not tried to reemerge uh, as a uh, public political leader. He has dedicated himself uh, to education, and I have not had communication uh, with him or his wife since we came back with him on a plane. Uh, provided by the South African government in 2011 uh, as the United States prohibited anyone else from providing transportation. The United States is also complicit in the situation of Haiti. These most recent demonstrations are a result of the raising of fuel prices in Haiti. And, of course, in 2018, the U.S. government, uh, in its uh, sanctions against Venezuela, broke another of the regional policy, progressive policy developments emerging uh, from the Hugo Chavez government of Petrocarib, when oil was then, as it is now, about $100 a barrel, and he was giving oil to Haiti, if I recall correctly. Um, I forget what the actual discount was, but it was a 20-year payback and other circumstances to enhance uh, social uh, material development in Haiti. And Haiti is not any longer able to take advantage of Petro-Karib, although Petro-Karib has recently been revived by the Maduro government as the contradictions uh, against the war in uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia and oil has opened up new possibilities for Petro-Karib. But this is the context. I would urge uh, the listening audience to look at Black Agenda Report and look at particularly the work of, of uh, the Black Alliance for Peace's uh, an analytical work, which is very accessible, uh, very brief, succinct, very clear um, about what the situation is there. And they have taken an initiative that other citizens uh, should join in, and that is to petition the Chinese uh, and the Russians uh, in the UN Security Council, along with President Obrador of Mexico, uh, as well as putting it before the Organization of American States to stand against a U.N. Uh, intervention led by the United States and Canada. And as I said, uh, the sending of these tanks and other military weapons is but a pretext, uh, because if Haiti is in a, the situation of crisis, uh, as has been described, and I think it is, the, the Henry government has proven that it is not capable of dealing with it. It does not have the personnel or perhaps even the will to do so. And therefore, it will require U.S. and Canadian personnel which are likely already clandestinely there. And I, uh, unfortunately, I think we will see this emerge in more formal 
uh, declaratory terms and, and not in the not in the very distant future. Yeah. And, you know, it's just wild watching how this is being reported and analyzed uh, <clears throat> here in the U.S. and the West, speaking of uh, the uh, corporate owned press. And to me, it's like they're framing it as though like the Haitian people are calling for a foreign intervention. But as we've noted, they're actually calling for the complete opposite. And I think you're correct in your summation, Mr. Early, that, you know, since Ariel Henri uh, uh, clearly does not have any real control in Haiti, it seems then that the U.S., Canada and these other forces are mobilizing to basically make sure that there isn't a kind of uh, revolutionary or, or system changing sort of <clears throat> political situation there by the masses of people who've been struggling in the streets, not just for weeks, but for years against all of these uh, uh, similar sorts of problems. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time, they would be, you know, more than happy to uh, uh, amplify, you know, protest happening in a, another country in like a color color revolution type of way that actually serves the interest of imperialism. So we always have to remember that these dynamics are never that far from the surface when we talk about the information that we receive and why we receive it. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And uh, Mr. Early, as you alluded to a moment ago in our conversation, in uh, just about two weeks, Brazil will be headed to the polls on the 30th uh, for the second round of their presidential elections, which, of course, features former president and uh, political prisoner Lula da Silva and uh, far right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. And they recently had a... (laughs) Very spirited uh, televised debate. I don't know if folks have uh, saw any of the clips, but, you know, the debate rules there are, you know, a little more lax than they are in the U.S. So, you know, it wasn't just these two cats just standing behind a podium for hours. I mean, they were, you know, roaming in front of cameras and speaking directly to each other and things like that. But what's well, one thing that's been notable to me about this, uh, uh, Mr. Earl, I mean, on the one hand, it seems clear that, you know, both. Uh, parties are aware of the need to really appeal um, uh, not only to their own base, but uh, possibly also uh, uh, the folks who uh, didn't participate in uh, the first round of elections. And I feel like we're seeing uh, a kind of repeat of tactics from the Bolsonaro camp instead of, you know, in terms of like just outright lies being spread uh, about Lula da Silva. I mean, back in 2018, we saw these things spread rapidly across, you know, social media platforms and WhatsApp and things like that. I mean, back then, Bolsonaro was 
claiming that there was some issue with the electronic voting system in Brazil, that it was fraudulent and unreliable. He talked about uh, supposed criminality and corruption in the PT or the Workers' Party. Uh, He spoke of uh, Fernando Haddad, who was a candidate for the Workers' Party, you know, supposedly planning to force homosexuality on children, also accused him of uh, giving out, quote unquote, gay kits in primary schools, whatever those were supposed to be. And so this time around, uh, what we're seeing are, you know, videos and articles about Lola supposedly planning to close down churches, uh, uh, taking pro-abortion stances, supposedly promoting uh, young people consuming drugs, uh, attacking the quote-unquote Brazilian family, worshiping Satan, just all kinds of ridiculous things. And uh, what's also interesting is how, you know, uh, Bolsonaro and his uh, ilk, you know, are always raising the fact that, you know, Lula was, uh, uh, you know, convicted uh, a criminal and things like that, an issue of corruption, calling him a thief and a criminal. But, you know, of course, he's leaving out the fact that all of those uh, charges were dropped and it was a very obvious sort of politically motivated incident of lawfare, uh, not terribly unlike what we saw with uh, another uh, former progressive president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff. And so with all of that and so much more uh, uh, bound up in this upcoming election in uh, uh, Brazil, Mr. Early, I'm just wondering how you're considering it all at this point. Well, the situation in Brazil is uh, really grave, given uh, Brazil's uh, centrality in our hemisphere, uh, given its uh, uh, black and mixed race uh, majority in the relationship uh, to the BRIC countries, South-South relations of progressive democracy. The main uh, and most important issue, uh, not unlike uh, what happened in the last presidential election here in the United States around Donald Trump and Trumpism, uh, is the battle against uh, fascism that uh, Bolsonaro represents, as uh, he is a military person, uh, remembering, I think it's 1984, when Brazil came out of its uh, long dictatorship. Uh, and that is the ominous uh, force uh, behind the scenes of his relationship to the military. Uh, and these they are ridiculous accusations against Lula, but Lula represents uh, one of the most um, progressive, not just ideological, but practically material policy expressions of social democracy policy in the entire world, uh, given the reduction of poverty and zero fome uh, that he uh, led in his last administration, given uh, the land rectification process with over the 3,000 Colombo communities who are uh, descendants of enslaved Africans and the hinterlands of this huge country, uh, his relationship with the landless movement, uh, perhaps the most important um, uh, really civic organization uh, in terms of a social movement in the world, the movement of landless people. Uh, but the fight against uh, fascism, as expressed by the Bolsonaro uh, movement, is really important. But here is even a more important factor that I think progressives and, and anti-imperialists have to face, not only with respect to Brazil, but it is quite evident here in the United States of America as well. And over-concentration on uh, individual political figures misses the fact that the formal policies of democracy, that is uh, the relatively free access of each citizen to threat terror himself uh, at the ballot box, uh, while that is very, very important, it is the content, the policy content, 
of democracy that is important. And that what is happening uh, both in Brazil and the United States is that large sectors of the voting population, including significant sections uh, of uh, working class people, are voting for these fascists. And we have to confront uh, the backward uh, conscious development uh, of these citizens' perspectives that lead to the sharp edge that these individual candidates express and not just be diverted uh, by the focus of the right-wing fascism that Bolsonaro represents or that Trump represents. Uh, while Trumpism is spread throughout the Republican Party, whether it's Romney, uh, 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 whether it's uh, the most recent defectors from the Republican Party in the United States, they all voted for Trump policies. And this is, and, and that, is, that means that the citizens who are voting them in is really got to be a frontline level of organization among working class people and the fight for progressive ideas that get manifested in real policy that benefits their interests. Because ultimately, Bolsonaro will pass, or Trump will pass. But if the social base of the working class is not engaged in more progressive perspectives and more self-interested material quality of life development, then we will continue to be diverted by the over-personalization of politics in these figures, uh, whether they be from the progressive uh, left and the transformative radical left as an overfocus, I would say, on the, the extraordinary leadership of the late Fidel Castro without understanding uh, what they were doing with uh, their Communist Party in relation to democracy of working class people and providing for self-determination and material development against the imperial, continuous imperial war of the United States in all kinds of levels. Uh, we will be diverted by more liberal, um, uh, centrist perspectives of color and gender. But we've got to get on that working class front to find out what is it uh, that, for example, in the case of Brazil, where over 54 percent of the population is self-identified through the census as black and mixed race, that significant numbers of them who are Protestants, these um, who are fighting against Catholicism, uh, who hold these homophobic views that the Bolsonaro is able to turn into a dangerous attack on progressives and to keep people uh, impoverished. The homophobia that is represented uh, in, these, in the Protestant church, uh, the, the anti-abortion perspectives in the Catholic church, in which many working-class people are tied to in their religious or cosmological outlook, is something that we've got to confront, even as we confront the most immediate danger of uh, people like Bolsonaro or Donald Trump, but not get diverted. That is simply that it's in these individual figures. So this election is very, very important. I have to be a little self-promotional here. I urge people to go online to YouTube to look at the People's Forums, uh, A New World Coming, uh, a 10-part series I moderated. And number eight in that series is with Javina Lopez, uh, an indigenous Afro woman in northeastern Brazil where the largest concentration of black uh, Brazilians live. Uh, that while supportive of the Lula uh, campaign is pointing out that it cannot revert uh, to its old vertical party role of delivering to the people, but it must work in consistent collaboration with the most organized progressive dimensions uh, of society, like the movement for landless people, uh, like the movement Negro, the black movement uh, there, uh, and other progressives who are dealing with policy issues, not personality issues, are 
we're dealing with the material quality of life, not with just the formal categories of being women or LGBTQ or being black. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate, uh, as always, you raising the importance of <clears throat> sort of the, the organized and mobilized uh, force of the, the working class here in the U.S. And that's important to stress because at so many levels, I feel like we get messaging that inclines us uh, against that. I mean, as we often point out on the show, I mean, capitalist culture is profoundly and deeply individualistic. Right. And that's not um, an accident. It's very intentional because if everyone is just walking around thinking that they're operating uh, in isolation of everyone else in this country and on this earth, well, then the thought doesn't even cross your mind about how to organize and uh, get amongst others. You'd only be focused on what you can do as an individual to really address your issues. And also the fact that, you know, uh, uh, the, the messaging that we get in the U.S., is that, you know, politically, all we have to do, the only thing that is required of us is to go to the ballot box and cast a vote. And once we have completed that specific act, then we have uh, achieved the ultimate political uh, gesture here in the United States, which, you know, completely just uh, ignores uh, the importance and the potency of the kind of organized action that you're describing, uh, uh, Mr. Early, like you say, that we see in Brazil with groups like the MST and others. And so it seems that uh, 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 in truth, and I think uh, throughout history, we've seen, you know, a lot of uh, different mobilizations and different kinds of uh, organizing along this way. And it just seems like it's important to really uh, uh, remember that as we approach the midterms uh, here in the U.S. where, you know, uh, uh, any number of uh, things could possibly happen potentially that could have a, a, a marked impact on the masses of poor working and oppressed people here um, for the foreseeable future. I think, frankly, uh, regardless of uh, who wins in a number of ways. And so I feel like there sort of needs to be a different concept, a reconceiving of what it means uh, to be politically active uh, in the United States. And I think this is the job of organizers and movement people to try to move people away from uh, this idea of uh, individual action and uh, replace that with this uh, collective orientation towards not just uh, who to cast a vote for, but how to actually uh, grasp power. You know what I mean? Indeed, and I think it centers on a lot on this term of uh, democracy. And uh, yes, the formal defense of the right and obligation of each person to express her and his interest in the material development of society, uh, the ethical direction of society, uh, must be defended. But that gets qualified from a class perspective. And so therein emerges the construct of a bourgeois democracy. When we simply defend the formal qualities of this, that is, against redlining, against racialized redistricting, uh, against prohibiting people from to vote, yes, we must defend that. But if we only see it as that, then we miss what are the deliverables uh, when you do vote uh, and when you do expand that right. And when we look at the deliverables, for example, of the Biden administration in keeping the 
extraordinary fascism, individualized fascism and racism and homophobia of a Donald Trump out? What have they delivered from the content side of democracy uh, versus just the formal issues of democracy? And so that a class perspective on democracy, what is in the material interest of, uh, of, of working uh, class people uh, to have universal uh, health care, to have a, uh, a local security uh, policing that they collaborate in determining how to secure uh, their safety. Uh, rather than to be victims of that or to be objects moved around uh, the, the chessboard or to have better transportation um, or to have a non-racialized, uh, working-class, grounded uh, orientation uh, to health care against, against COVID when it's revealed that the society is really run by black and brown people and, and particularly women in the healthcare arena, in the transportation arena, in the food service arena. This is the political education that we have got to invite and engage working class people to really struggle around, not just in opposition to the elite dimension, class dimensions, whether they are black, brown, or white, or whatever color, but in relationship to the struggles among working class people where so many of them, because of race or religious perspective or because of sexual orientation, are in opposition with one another through the backward dimensions, uh, elements of religion. Not that religion in and of itself is backward, but there are elements of it that we have to confront. And that over about almost 50 percent of the voting population in the United States vote ultimately for different reasons, different material interests, sometimes common or distinct ideological reasons for these fascists uh, in uh, the Republican Party or for these centrists in the Democratic Party who use us as cannon fodder to see, let's hold off the banner of fascism by voting for us, but we're not going to really effectuate a qualitative change in the material quality of your life. For example, universal health care with the Interest in the Democratic Party, be they women, black, gay, brown, Spanish-speaking, Creole-speaking, whatever they are, who stand with the pharmaceutical companies will not take them on. And we here's where Bernie Sanders' voice, uh, representing organized communities that predate him, who is saying, uh, in this upcoming election, uh, we have to not just focus on the preservation of the right of women to control their own bodies, uh, their own sense of their essence as human beings. But we also have to get to these working class issues where people are being squeezed and not being delivered the material uh, content, policy content for which they voted by being diverted uh, to hot button issues solely as important uh, as the preservation of the, of the right of women to make a determination about their bodies. Uh, and the very nature of who they are, because it is a tax on their being as women, not just on their reproductive rights. And so this is a, the ground of political education that progressives must be more straightforward and analytical about and engaging working class people in debate and in the proposal of real progressive projects uh, that can bring about change in material life and bring about true democracy that is people's power from a progressive point of view, not just from an abstract view of what the majority vote is. 
Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Mr. James Early is here as we continue. And Mr. Early, not to make uh, too much of a pivot here, although I do think that this uh, has some resonance with what we've been discussing so far this hour. I, I wanted to raise this uh, issue uh, of uh, uh, James Burrell uh, uh, in an address that he gave uh, to the inauguration of the uh, European Diplomatic Academy in Brussels. And, you know, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because it's pretty fascinating uh, sometimes to sort of see how, uh, you know, imperialism can be honest about its uh, racism, its violence, and uh, all these sorts of things. Oh, forgive me, that was a Joseph Burrell, not uh, not uh, uh, James Burrell, who's the high representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. But but check out the language uh, that he uses here when discussing the European Union and Europe in uh, contrast to the rest of the world. He said, "Quote: Europe is a garden. We have built a garden." Everything works. It is the best combination of political freedom, economic prosperity, and social cohesion that humankind has been able to build. The three things together. And here, which is maybe a good representation of beautiful things, intellectual life, well-being. The rest of the world, you know this very well, is not exactly a garden. Most of the rest of the world is a jungle. And the jungle could invade the garden. The gardeners should take care of it, but they will not protect the garden by building walls. A nice small garden surrounded by high walls in order to prevent the jungle from coming in is not going to be a solution. Because the jungle has a strong growth capacity and the wall will never be high enough in order to protect the garden. The gardeners have to go to the jungle. Europeans have to be much more engaged with the rest of the world. Otherwise, the rest of the world will invade us by different ways and means. He later went on to discuss uh, the war in Ukraine, saying after the war, quote, it will become a period of instability and we will have to build a new security order. How do we integrate Russia, the post-Putin Russia, in this world order is something that will put a lot of work for people thinking on diplomacy and on how to practice and to implement it. Now, Mr. Early, just in reading this, I mean, this feels like something straight out of uh, uh, Rudyard Kipling and the white man's burden. I mean, you know, the the, the racism of uh, painting the rest of the world as a, a dark jungle and, you know, Europe as uh, uh, the ultimate example, the, the exemplar of uh, civilization and the uprightness of uh, statehood uh, is a classic one. And it actually reminds me of something that Joe Biden uh, said not that long ago when he said that, well, you know, Latin America 
work is not the backyard of the United States. It's the front yard, as if that's some uh, grand promotion. And he didn't also he also didn't miss the opportunity to basically call for regime change in Russia, talking about a post Putin Russia and all these sorts of things. And so I think to me, it says a couple of things. I mean, number one, you know, just uh, the fundamental fact that white supremacy undergirds uh, uh, imperialism itself and the way that it plays out. So it's no coincidence that we see imperialism operating in uh, the global South the way that it does, and also how this reflects on geopolitics of the moment in terms of uh, the proxy war in Ukraine and how the European Union, along with the U.S. and the rest of the West and its junior uh, uh, partners and allies, clearly desire for a regime change inside that country. So here again, it doesn't really sound like a country that uh, (laughs) values democracy. But I mean, Mr. Early, how do you sort of see, you know, this kind of, you know, thinking reflecting in uh, the politics of our time? Because I feel like this is precisely why uh, so many different governments of the world and why so many social movements uh, around the world are putting a lot of energy into uh, working towards a world that uh, is no longer suffering under the stranglehold of U.S. hegemony. Well, I, 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 I think it, it's really a um, poetic, uh, perverted uh, narration uh, of an old noblesse oblige, uh, let us uh, save the world by invading and colonizing the world against uh, the barbarians um, whose natural resources uh, we want. And if they are of a different language or color, uh, we can add that extra um, uh, indicator uh, to uphold a a perverted, uh, corrupt, Eurocentric perspective as being the universal in terms of ideals and culture and aesthetics. Uh, But if they are of the same basic phenotype as we are, which would be the case of Russia with uh, Western Europe, uh, we will see it as um, the hordes uh, against uh, civilization, against this garden that we have built, and we will uh, put that solely in the personhood of Putin. And I think Putin is a uh, problematic, I think, a psychopath who uh, is not only killing working class uh, Ukrainians, but also putting uh, working class Russians uh, there. There are many legitimate issues that Russia as a nation uh, is defending and should defend, uh, recognizing that there are Russian populations uh, within the boundaries of Ukraine, recognizing the fascism uh, that is uh, uh, represented in the, the Zelensky government and the coup that uh, he is the public expression of that uh, the Europeans under NATO and the United States did in overthrowing a legitimate uh, nationalist government uh, inside Ukraine. There are many, many complications, and this is where the political education of unraveling some of these strands. But the point that we have to be most concerned about is that the historic expansion of NATO towards the borders of Russia, uh, where significant amounts of gas and oil uh, comes from, is really the ultimate aim of control. And to take that out of the sphere, uh, complicated sphere, uh, in the struggle against U.S. imperialism and Western Europe imperialism, 
in which the Russian state, along uh, with China and the complications in um, Iran, uh, complications in India and Pakistan, um, uh, Indonesia, uh, Turkey, there are complications all around here. But there is a dividing line between these two broad trends in which U.S. empire wants a mono a political world in which U.S. imperialism and its NATO allies control, rather than a multipolar world uh, in which there is the right and obligation of distinct nations to pursue their own economic uh, means of uh, self-sustainability. Uh, 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 and so that this should be a huge concern because the practical implications of this garden metaphor are already unfolding literally on the ground. And Ukraine is being used as one of the instrumentalities for this. The recent uh, tour of the Ukrainian foreign minister uh, in Africa uh, is trying to break them away from their de facto material alliances and interests uh, with Russia uh, and with other uh, anti-imperialist countries around the world. And, of course, NATO's expansion into Africa militarily, along with AFRICOM uh, under the United States, uh, is something that we must look at and be ultimately concerned about, because it is Western Europe who colonized the South and who racialized capitalism. Uh, and it is the United States government who dropped an atomic bomb, the only one in the history of humankind, who is not using its uh, diplomacy leverage in communication uh, with Russia to try to bring some kind of just truth. And I underscore the word truth here. It won't be a peace. There are historical issues of Russian populations in what is called Ukraine, uh, of issues of self-determination that must be dealt with. This is not just an abstract Ukrainian nation. There is the history of fascism and contemporary expressions of fascism. The, John McCain, the late John McCain was very tied up in supporting some of these fascist towards the coup that took place in the Ukraine. And so that Putin, again, is an over-personalized expression of, of struggle. Uh, there is something larger between the nations of, of Russia and what is going on in the Ukraine and Western Europe with NATO. NATO is also expanding into Latin America. And in this line, uh, let us not forget about the apartheid occupational colonizers of the government of Israel. Uh, which have become the sort of secretive gendarmes around the world, the experts now with Colombia uh, in South America uh, who are training uh, the secret police and the secret uh, invasion movement. So that is a complex, again, that voting working-class people have got to find themselves uh, to analyze and to work them work their way through and not just caught up, be caught up in this ultra-nationalism this sort of football or basketball analogy of who's winning and who's losing, uh, when we can see before our very eyes that who's losing are the lives of everyday working class citizens in, the, in Russia and everyday working class citizens in uh, the Ukraine. And who are the winners in this? It is the elites, the capitalist elites, who are pushing this system of exploitation. And they come in multiple colors, multiple languages. So this is the complexity that where we have to deal with the messiness of the struggle for power and the application of power at the policy level, and not just the abstract, uh, easy, far too easy, ideological labels 
of capitalist, anti-capitalist, imperialist, non-imperialist, non-aligned, all important factors, but we have to get into what are the actual circumstances that are being uh, struggled over. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you raising this issue of um, uh, John McCain, uh, you know, who was photographed with and met with uh, Ole Tenenbach of uh, the right wing uh, nationalist Svoboda party. And because, uh, you know, this is just one uh, piece of this that that gets uh, glossed over so much here in the West. And actually, I want to point something out to our listeners, because, you know, you, you said a lot that was quite valuable there uh, in your response, Mr. Early. And so we're here on Radio Sputnik, Russian media. Uh, You call Russian President Vladimir Putin a psychopath and then point out correctly uh, the role of NATO expansion in all of this and also lay out a number of other uh, very pertinent dynamics and issues that are all bound up in this proxy war in Ukraine. But that level of nuance is verboten in the American uh, popular consciousness at this moment. Certainly that's the case at the heights of uh, elected government power and the corporate press, where it, it straight up does not matter how much uh, you condemn Putin. If you implicate anyone other than him, well, uh, then, you know, not only are you incorrect, you are excoriated as a servant of the Kremlin and things like this. But this is how low uh, the level of, uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 discourse is here in the United States. And, you know, on top of that, Mr. Early, there's a real existential danger that is bound up in this that we've been consistently, almost constantly pointing out on the show that the American people uh, seem to be missing. And that is uh, this sort of looming threat of open nuclear conflict between Russia and the United States, which would be catastrophic for humanity. And another aspect of this is, uh, I believe, just today, uh, NATO has begun uh, 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 holding uh, nuclear weapons drills and things like this under the name uh, Steadfast Noon, Operation Steadfast Noon, which involves up to 60 warplanes from uh, uh, 14 NATO member states and uh, is being carried out reportedly from uh, the Klein Brogel Air Base in northeastern Belgium. Now, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons or ECAN uh, warned ahead of this drill, quote, all nuclear exercises imply willingness to mass murder civilians, wipe out entire cities and risk all out nuclear war. They also risk accidents and escalation and will legitimize Russia's dangerous nuclear rhetoric. And so I, I particularly I wanted to highlight the part about uh, potential accidents and escalations, because I think that's something that people often don't uh, factor in when considering this about how there can be a problem about something that necessarily wasn't even done on purpose. And so to me, Mr. Early, this points to the urgency that uh, we have to move with here in the United States from the standpoint of uh, an anti-imperialist movement and uh, a real peace movement, because the more time goes on and the more things escalate as wars tend to do, the more dangerous things get for all of us. And we understand very clearly that those who are in power, at least here in the U.S. and the West, have no interest in peace. Indeed, they have scuttled uh, peace talks between uh, Ukraine and Russia and therefore or is it incumbent upon us, the real conscience of this country, to uh, step in and try to pull humanity back from the brink of oblivion? The speculative dimensions of the urgency of this particular moment with regard to nuclear war 
real as they are in the speculative side, must be contrasted against what we know from history. And we know from history that only one country in its ideological and political and imperial interests has developed and dropped a nuclear weapon, which foreshadows the speculative dimensions of that, and that is the United States of America against Japan. We must never forget that. We must put that in the context of that when the Russians were mounting hundreds of thousands of troops on the border of Ukraine, uh, the Biden-Harris administration took the position that, well, we'll just have to wait and see. We don't think anything will happen, rather than stepping forth on that, using their leverage on the diplomatic front to say, what are the legitimate multiple justice interests, both inside Ukraine, of these national minorities or these Russian populations internal uh, to Ukraine? What are the legitimate interests of the Russian nature of the encrosion and the breaking of previous agreements that NATO would not expand towards the Russian border uh, and towards the issues of Russian oil and gas. Uh, And the United States sat on the side, and what that decision was calculated to do is we will risk the Ukrainians, and we will use them as a test case of how far we can push our imperial design. Now, once Russia invaded the Ukraine, and people started to die in the destruction and the six million people that have been displaced. What does NATO and the United States assume its position to be? Let's increase the military power, no matter how many people are being displaced, not let, not let us use uh, diplomacy to do so. Now, on the nuclear front, they're taking the same position. And this is where United States citizens must stand up, not only in our self-interest, but in the interest of all and collaborating with all of humanity, not in an arrogant American exceptionalist way that we know better, but we must join the forces inside Ukraine, the forces inside NATO countries, the forces inside Russia who are calling for just truth. And just truth means a compromise on a number of arenas, uh, which are the points of conflict around which uh, the these battles now, this hot war is unfolding and around which the potential use of military weapons. And we must also bring a brutal honesty to the situation of nuclear weapons. There we have apartheid occupation, Israel sitting in the East, a nuclear power, which no one wants to talk about as they continue to focus on uh, the test cases in North Korea. This is the dishonesty that must be confronted, and that working-class people, it is a complicated situation, but in order to secure our material interests, in order to secure the kind of ethical world that we want, we must learn to confront and to negotiate those complications and to find where are the compromises in uh, the interest of the advancement of humanity. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Mr. Early, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. Be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.